Episode 14, The Founding of Rome. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 14, The Founding of Rome. Okay, I've been building up to Rome for basically this whole podcast so far, and now it's time to finally start talking about it. But in this episode, I want to answer the question, why should we talk about Rome? Why is Rome so important? Before I even get around to talking about the history of Rome, which is incredibly cool in itself, I want to talk about here at the front end, why Rome is so influential, why it's so important. I mean, you could make the argument that it's the most important civilization in all of history. Its only potential rival would be China. If you confine your argument to the Western world, then the clear winner in a category all to itself is Rome. Ancient Greece has a case too, but just because they were first. Or or were they? Actually, the Roman Republic started before the Golden Age of Greece, so some of the things that made Rome Rome were already in place when the Romans began to bump into Greek ideals and take them over. And of course, Rome took those ideals and remade them in a distinctly Roman way. British Empire has a case to make too, but that's more than 1,500 years in the future, and we're still talking about the ancient world at this point. Also, Britain didn't last nearly as long as Rome. So, what are the reasons I think Rome was so important? Size, duration, military prowess, government structures, government legacy, architecture, engineering, and ongoing influence down through the ages. There. Is that enough? Let's unpack those. First of all, size. The Roman Republic, at the time of Julius Caesar, in the 50s BC, stretched all the way around the Mediterranean Sea, and it grew even bigger from there, reaching its maximum size under the Emperor Trajan in AD 114. At that point, all of Europe, south of Germany, and and some parts of Germany too, was Roman. The south half of Britain, all of Syria and the Promised Land, Upper and Lower Egypt, parts of the Persian Empire, all of the coast of North Africa and all of the islands in the Mediterranean, all of it, every bit controlled by Rome. And this lasted for many, many years. Sure, they lost some territory from their maximum, but they kept getting it back. They would lose some here and then they'd gain some there. Alexander's empire might have been geographically larger, but he never really controlled all of it. Plus, a lot of it was just empty space. The Romans controlled the most densely populated part of the world. And it was huge, especially for its day. And they kept it together for a long, long time. Another part of the size thing is that they controlled the whole Mediterranean. No one else has done that. Think about the disparate cultures all around the Mediterranean Sea, many of them fiercely independent um, and at war with each other often. And Rome controlled them all for a while and left its mark on all of them. And throughout that area of control, Rome developed infrastructure. There were Roman roads all throughout the Mediterranean, Roman buildings, Roman aqueducts, bridges, and a very well-managed system of government. Another thing about size, the city of Rome was huge. It had over a million people in it at the time of Jesus' birth. It was the biggest city in the world for a long time, until it was surpassed by London sometime in the 1800s. Just to be clear, Rome wasn't huge the whole time. It definitely declined in numbers after the fall of the empire. But it took a long time before another city in the West got as big as Rome had been at its peak. So, to recap, 
Rome was really, really big, and it had an impact on many different areas all around Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. The next reason Rome was a big deal and influential was because it lasted so long. There were other empires that were bigger at their peak, like Alexander's or the Mongol Empire or the British Empire, but none of them lasted as long as Rome. The Roman Republic was started, according to legend, in 509 BC, and the Roman Empire lasted until 476 AD, and that's, that's just the western part of the empire headquartered in Rome or Italy. The Byzantine Empire, which was just sort of the eastern part of the Roman Empire, headquartered in Constantinople, or Byzantium as it was also called, that lasted until 1453 AD. So depending on how you count it, Rome lasted for either 985 years or... 1,962 years. Now for me, I'm going to go with a 985-year figure because Byzantium ended up being its own sort of separate thing. So we're just going to focus on Western Rome here and, and come up with the figure of 985 years. But even so, 985 years is a long time because in the ancient world, empires didn't last that long. They didn't last that long in the modern world either. So Rome had a long time of being influential as well as being big. Another reason that Rome was so influential was the way they basically just continually kicked the butts of anyone they came into contact with. Militarily, they were amazing. Okay, Sparta was great, Alexander was great, but Rome took it to a whole other level, and they kept that up for a long, long time. The Romans had a unique warlike nature. They really didn't want to be at peace with their neighbors. They wanted to be at war with them. They wanted to conquer them. They wanted to eradicate them. Sparta was organized for war, sure, but they basically saw that as a way to defend their city and their way of life. The Romans were organized that way because they felt it was their destiny to rule the world, to conquer everyone they encounter. It was sort of built into their mindset. I'll talk about this more as we go through their actual history, but Rome basically beat or absorbed everyone they fought with, and they did it in this both brutal and honorable civilized way. They basically told anyone they came into contact with, you can join us and be our allies, and we will protect you as long as you pay us tribute money and provide soldiers. Or, we can fight you, and we will beat you, and then we'll just take you over. And when the Romans took over, they tended to just kind of leave things as they were, but overlay an upper level of Roman rule over whatever was already going on. And they settled Roman colonists in the area they conquered, and that further Romanized things. Then the Romans took from the places they conquered... They took the people and they put them into legions or sometimes made them slaves. That also further Romanized those peoples. The legions also changed the way that the world did warfare because they were so well organized and disciplined and so effective. So as long as the conquered places were mostly tolerant of Roman rule and provided their soldiers and their tribute, Rome sort of left them alone. The exception to this were the people that were defiant of Rome's rule and then the Romans basically just wiped them out took all their people for slaves, and then used what was left of their city as a colony for retired Roman soldiers. When a city or people defied Rome, the Romans were ruthless, and they always won, no matter how long it took. You, you just didn't mess with Rome, and everyone in the ancient world knew it. So Rome was not just big and long-lasting, they were dominant militarily. In a similar way, Rome changed the way the world was connected. By controlling all of the Mediterranean, Rome allowed for a huge increase in Mediterranean trade and created this big, interconnected economy, all centered on Rome. Another reason the Romans were so influential, the Romans were organized, and they organized the people that they conquered. 
I mean, they were organized at a whole other level. They kind of hated disorder and disorganization. So wherever they went, they organized and they improved the local structures. I'm going to spend some more time on how the Roman government was organized as we work through history, but I want to start by making this observation. By the time of the Roman Empire, the Romans had developed a very stable model of government. At first, the Roman Republic was basically ruled by the Roman Senate. To understand the Senate, you have to understand that the Roman society had two classes, an upper class and a lower class. The upper class were called the patricians, which loosely means fathers. It's where we get the word patriarchy. The earliest Roman families at the time of the founding of the Senate were the patricians. They were the aristocrats, the wealthy land-owning families, the upper class of society. To be in the Senate, you had to be from a patrician family. So basically, at the beginning, the Romans were ruled by an assembly called the Senate that was entirely drawn from these aristocratic families. Every year, the Senate elected two leaders called consuls. They were the ones who had the authority to call the Senate together, and they were also the generals of the Roman legions. The other lower class of Roman society were called the plebeians, or often just called the plebs. They were still Roman citizens, but they could not become part of the Senate, at least at first. Some of the plebeian families, though, were very, very wealthy and thus became very, very influential. But they weren't patricians, so they couldn't be part of the Senate. This eventually made the plebeians very angry, and they began to agitate for their own rights. As we see in today's world, there are a lot more commoners than there are aristocrats. So the commoners, the plebeians, have the advantage of sheer numbers. The plebeians in Rome were also often the soldiers of Rome, and they knew how to fight. Not that the senators didn't, though, because the senators had also served in the legions, and many of them had fought as well. But the plebeians, who outnumbered the patrician aristocrats, began to agitate for their rights. Eventually, the plebeians were granted their own assembly and their own leaders called tribunes. So the tribunes sort of balanced out the power of the senate and the consuls. The tribunes had the right to veto any senate law. The veto simply means, I forbid, in Latin. So they could stop a law from being passed. Do you see what the Romans have done here? Separation of powers. Balance of powers. Both the upper and lower classes had some powers of legislation and had representation in government. Do you feel like today you have legitimate representation in our current federal government? I sort of don't. Feeling a little bit early plebeian here. Despite this balance of power in the Roman governments, there was still a lot of tension between the two classes. The plebeians never felt like they were getting a fair deal. There were a lot of disputes about land ownership as the wealthy patrician families gobbled up all the farmland that the plebeian legions had conquered. In fact, the main reason that the Roman Republic ends up falling apart was the ongoing fighting between the plebes and the patricians. There's definitely a parallel to be drawn here between Rome and our current republic. It's my contention that the real battle going on in the United States right now is between the oligarchs and the rest of us, despite the best efforts of the oligarchs who control the media and the government, to make us all think that the fight is about race or gender or political party or immigration or security or public health. It really seems pretty obvious to me that the real battle is between the 1% who control the media and the levers of power and the 99%. And right now, the 99% is not fairly represented in our federal government. This was true of Rome, too, and the plebeians kept fighting with the patricians for power. It was sort of a wobbly, two-legged stool, and power kept shifting one way and then the other. What eventually happened was that, starting with Julius Caesar, 
a third stool leg was added. This was the stool leg of dictatorship, supported by the army. This created something like a third branch of government, besides the Senate and the Plebeian Assembly. This was really settled by the time of Caesar Augustus, who created a perpetual dictatorship, and he started the Roman Empire. Now they had three stool legs, three groups, the plebeians, the patricians, and the permanent governmental apparatus of the empire. And they all kind of kept each other in check. It wasn't perfect, and there were a lot of abuses, but it ended up being a very stable system, which is why it lasted for so long. Balance of power. Let's hope that the current imbalance of power here today isn't solved in the same way by the installation of an emperor. One of the other differences of Rome and the other dictatorships down throughout history is that the Senate and the plebeians still had power, and the emperor had to respect that. The senators were all wealthy, and they had lots of supporters and lots of land, and often the families had many members who had been consuls and soldiers in the legions. The plebeians were always the most numerous, and they could stir up trouble by sheer mob action. And the emperors and the empire structure controlled the legions and the praetorian guards, so there was this kind of balance. This added to the lasting influence of Rome. It was just built this way and stayed that way for a long time. Another reason that Rome was so influential, they had some great ideas about government itself. They wrote down their laws, and they kept those laws out in the forum for all to see. They really developed the idea of separation of powers, of term limits, of guaranteed rights for citizens, and they loved the idea of the rule of law. In theory, no one was above the law. They also really did not care for tyrants, although they did eventually accept the idea of emperors. Another piece of this is that Romans were pretty meticulous about writing things down. They love their own history, and some of the best-preserved histories of the ancient world are Roman, so the well-written and thorough Roman histories were preserved and studied down throughout history, adding to their influence over time, and the Romans spent a lot of time in their histories describing their governmental structures and what were good and bad about them. One last reason why Rome was so influential. Infrastructure. Man, the Romans could build stuff. I mentioned roads earlier, but they also built bridges, sewer systems, irrigation, buildings, and aqueducts, some of which survive to this day. Think about how much stuff from the ancient world has survived to this day. It's really not that much, a fraction of what all was built, but a whole lot of what's left is Roman. They built things well, and they built things on a huge scale. There's a great scene in the movie Gladiator, where a gladiator slave from the provinces, from out in the sticks, he comes to Rome for the first time, and he sees the Colosseum, and he says, I did not know that men could build such things. The Romans were like, yeah, a 100,000-person stadium, no problem. We can do that. And they built stuff like that all over the empire. So why is Rome so important? To recap, size, duration, military prowess, government structures, government legacy, architecture, engineering, and the ongoing influence down through the ages. They influenced everything they touched. There's another great quote from the Monty Python movie, The Life of Brian. There's a guy who's a Jewish rebel, and he's complaining to his group about the Romans, and he asks his group of followers the rhetorical question, what have the Romans ever done for us? And the group keeps giving him answers and keeps going on and on, giving him all these different answers, and he finally has to say, all right, but apart from sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, the fresh water system, and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Yeah, the Romans left a huge mark on all the areas that they conquered. 
there's one other thing I have to mention about why Rome was so influential, and it, it sort of isn't about Rome per se, but more about another fairly influential organization that really tried to model itself on Rome, and that is the Catholic Church. In 313 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which established Christianity as a legitimate religion in the Roman Empire. This might have been the worst thing that ever happened to the church. Soon after that, Christianity became sort of an unofficial branch of the Roman government. And very quickly after that, it became, like all government does, completely corrupt. But the next 1,200 years in Europe were dominated by the Catholic Church. It's hard to overstate how much the Catholic Church modeled itself after the Roman Empire. The idea of one supreme leader, I mean the Pope, who lives in Rome, sounds kind of like the Roman Empire. Even the formal name of the Pope that the Pope has taken on, Pontifex Maximus. That was the title of the supreme priest of the Roman pagan gods from over 400 years before the time of Jesus. The Catholic Church is probably more Roman than it is biblical, at least in some of its structures. I will need to come back to the early history of the church and the development of the Catholic Church when we get there in the actual timeline. But anyway, the Catholic Church, which intentionally modeled itself after Rome, was very influential for a long time. Still is, I guess. But now we are. To set ourselves back into the flow of history, we are at the founding of Rome, which, according to legend, happened on April 21st, 753 BC. Is that accurate? Uh, No one really knows, but that's the date according to the legends. Before Rome was actually founded, the major tribes in the area were the Etruscans to the north of where Rome ends up, um, the Latins in the area around Rome, the Samnite tribe to the south, and the Sabines in the hills to the west. The Etruscans were the largest group, and they had a fairly well-developed civilization already. The Romans end up taking on a lot of these Etruscan things later on. The Etruscans usually built their towns on an organized north-south grid with two main roads in a cross pattern intersecting at the center of town in a kind of forum or a market square in the middle. The Romans later copied this design in many of the towns they founded, though Rome itself was famously not this way, but it was rather sort of a hodgepodge, disorganized mess. Not too much is known of any of the early tribes around Rome because no written records from them survive. What we do know of them is from the Roman historians and from archaeology and pottery. We do know that none of these tribes were very happy about the founding of Rome. Rome ends up being built on a group of seven hills just on the west side of the Tiber River. There were probably some small Latin settlements there already at the time of Rome's founding. So, How was Rome founded? According to legend, the Trojan hero Aeneas survived the battle with the Greeks at Troy, and he went on a long voyage to find a new place to settle with his men. His voyage is recounted in the epic poem The Aeneid, written by the Roman poet Virgil. It's written in beautiful Latin. It's supposed to be one of the best examples of the Latin language. It's a story that's fairly similar to Homer's epic poem The Odyssey, with the important addition of a story about Aeneas spurning the love of a woman named Dido, the queen of Carthage. This sets up a sort of epic poem historical pretext for the later ongoing battle between Rome and Carthage. Anyway, after Carthage, Aeneas ends up landing on the coast of Italy, in the region controlled by the Latins. Aeneas charms the Latin king, and he ends up marrying a Latin princess named Lavinius. They should probably make a Disney movie about her. Lavinius and the Seven Hills, or something like that. Aeneas and Lavinius have some kids, and they eventually become the leaders of the Latin tribe. 
A few generations later, one of their descendants, a girl named Rhea Silvia, was forced to become one of the Vestal Virgins. The Vestal Virgins were young girls who tended the shrine of Vesta, the Roman goddess of hearth, home, and family. Bit of an irony there, yes. Rhea was forced to become one of the Vestal Virgins because her brother was overthrown as king by their younger brother, and he didn't want anyone challenging his reign. Anyway, as the legend goes, Rhea Silvia was later attacked by Mars, the god of war, and she became pregnant with twins. When the usurper brother, Amulius, heard that those twins had been born, he ordered them killed. The assassins took the twins, and they were supposed to drown them in the Tiber, but the Tiber was flooded, so they st instead they just set them adrift in a basket. A bit later, a local shepherd comes along, and he finds the twins on the bank of the river, being fed, nursed, by a she-wolf. He took the twins home, and he and his wife raised them. The twins' names were Romulus and Remus. They grew up and decided to build a new city on the banks of the Tiber. The twins each chose different hills, and they began to build walls and houses. According to the legend, at one point, Remus comes over and mocks Romulus's progress on the wall building, and he even leapt over Romulus's wall to show off. At that, Romulus killed him and became the sole leader of the new city, which was named Rome, after him, of course. If Remus had won, maybe it would have been named Reem. The glory that was Reem. I don't know, it does, just doesn't have the same ring, does it? So Romulus has a new city, but he doesn't have a lot of people in it. So he puts out a call to the surrounding countryside that anyone guilty of a crime could have amnesty if they came and settled in his new city. So soon all the bandits and vagabonds and thieves and murderers from miles around come, and pretty quickly there's a lot of people living in the city, except they were all guys. So the initial inhabitants of Rome decided they wanted wives. They staged a big festival invited all the local tribes, and during the festival, they kidnapped all the wives and daughters. So you can see from the beginning that Rome was going to be a bit aggressive. They never lost that edge, at least not until the very close of the empire. The wives, daughters, thieves, and tribesmen eventually sorted things out peacefully, and the city of Rome becomes a sort of semi-Latin city. Rome fought with the Latins at times, but usually they were allies, and eventually Rome just kind of took over all the Latin territory, and it was all Roman. And, of course, the Latin's language is Latin, and that becomes the language of Rome. So Latin becomes this very dominant language, another piece of influence that spreads all across of Europe. The Romans fought with all the other tribes around them as well. To the north, they fought with the Etruscans, who were actually much bigger and better-off tribes. To the south, they fought with the Samnites, and to the east, in the hills in central Italy, they fought with the Sabines. Rome fought with all of them in the early days before they eventually conquered the entire Italian peninsula. The Romans did have some advantages. First, the city of Rome itself was eventually well fortified. They built walls around it, and they had the Tiber River right there on one side protecting them and also as a water source. The Tiber was wide and hard to cross. Plus, inside the city, there were seven hills, and on the top of those hills, um, they had built walls and fortifications up there as well. The lands around Rome were fertile and they could grow a lot of crops. And the Romans, from the beginning, did a lot of raiding of other tribes and settlements. From the times of Romulus, Rome was governed by a king. According to the historian Livy, who seems to be referencing even older sources, there were seven kings of Rome. Each one taught the Romans something. Romulus taught them to be proud and warlike. Romulus also created the Senate 
a council that was composed of a hundred men at first from different families. These original families end up becoming the patricians, even though over time other families were admitted to patrician status as well. The second king, Numa, taught the Romans the importance of being respectful of tradition and of the gods. Each of the seven kings had a reasonably long reign, and the period of the kings lasts from its founding in 753 BC until the last king in 510 BC, a period of 243 years. I have to mention that really, all of this prehistory is legend, and even the Roman historians like Livy make note of that, and they take it all kind of skeptically. The last three kings of Rome were Etruscans because they took over the throne in 716 BC. The very last king was a guy named Tarquinius Superbus, or Tarquin the Proud. He ruled poorly and made the Senate very mad at him. And at one point, he assaulted a young girl named Lucretia, who then killed herself. This was the final straw, and her family and other senators' families rose up against Tarquin, and they overthrew him. Instead of installing another king, the Senate itself took control of Rome, and this was the beginning of the Roman Republic. This was in 509 BC, and from then on, until the Republic began to fall apart around 100 BC, all of the leaders of Rome were elected officials. As Livy says, my task from now on will be to trace the history of a free nation governed by annually elected officers of state, subject not to the caprice of individual men, but to the overriding authority of the law. That quote from Livy captures a whole lot about Roman values just right there. The authority of the law, the distaste for tyrants, the distaste for disorder, and, and even the sense of destiny about Rome. I want to close by mentioning that even at the beginning, the seeds for the undoing of the Republic that we're going to start looking at next week, the seeds were being sown. I said earlier that there were two classes, the patricians and the plebeians. At first, all the people in power were patricians. The problem with that was that very quickly as the city grew, the majority of the people were plebeians, and they very much felt that their voice was not adequately heard in the government. This struggle between the plebeians and the patricians is going to be an ongoing problem for Rome and its republic and for our republic today. I hope in this episode I've somewhat answered the question, what did the Romans ever do for us? In the next episode, we will look at the Roman Republic. Mm-hmm.